We'll take our scripture reading from Matthew 28 this morning. If you want to turn there, follow along or make notes. I want to say again, uh, thankful everybody's here today. Let's pray the Holy Spirit will be with us and with His Word that we'll understand Him better. You might call this uh, the Ecclesia Part 6. <laughs> and this might be the last time I address uh, the body of Christ in, in this season. Um, we'll see. But I, I feel like this might be the conclusion for now. To give us the uh, context, Jesus has uh, completed his earthly ministry, he has been crucified. He's been buried. He has resurrected from the grave. And this is his parting words to his, not just his disciples, his followers, but to his ecclesia. This is what he told his church when he left. And this applies to us because we are a body of Christ, the New Testament body of Christ here. 16th verse, then the 11th. Eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I don't know about you all, but those are some comforting parting words. There's a few things I want to point out about this passage before we continue with the message. First of all, Uh, Jesus, as I said, has already completed his ministry. These people have spent years uh, walking with him, living with him, watching him perform miracles, listening to his fulfillment of prophecy, watching the scriptures unfold before their eyes. Let's not forget, John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ was the uh, introduction of the kingdom of heaven into the world. When he was born... And then started, really, when he started his ministry, that was the uh, coming of the kingdom. They watched this. They're all the way up to the end. He has already been resurrected. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. She went back and told him. They didn't believe it. He's come through the wall. I mean, I don't understand how his glorified body works, but apparently it can pass through walls. Apparently, it's still a physical body because he, he ate. Remember? But he didn't have to open the door to get in. He just appeared. They have seen all of this. Thomas has doubted and Jesus said, put your hand in my side. (laughs) All this has already happened. Jesus tells them ahead of time. That's what this means in the King James. It says they went to a mountain that he appointed. It just means simply a place that Jesus had designated. They knew that they were supposed to go meet him up there. We don't have that recorded, but we know from the context that he told his congregation, come up here and meet with me. And they did, and the first thing we're told is, some doubted. (laughs) Some worshipped him. Why am I dwelling on that point? Because nothing has changed. 
Every time we assemble as the ecclesia, I think there's some people who worship and some people who doubt. Some people who latch on to the message and some people who are resistant to it. Some people who submit and surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and some people who want it their own way. It's no different then. This is the last meeting in person of the head of the body with the body. Ever since after this point, the head leads us through his Holy Spirit. This is the last time he met in person with them. That, and that's why it's, this is so significant. He uh, reminds them and says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That's not a novel teaching. That is something he has been living, he's been teaching, he's been demonstrating throughout the three, approximate three years of his ministry. They've been seeing this over and over. And he reminds them, All power... And brothers and sisters, we, we need to be reminded of that. We need to remember that all authority and all power that exists has been vested in Christ. And what did he do in light of that? In light of reminding them that he has all power, there are a lot of things he could have done. He could have given them eternal life on earth if he wanted to. If you ever thought of that, we haven't maybe thought through this. He said, all power is given me in heaven and earth. He could have said, you're never going to die. Until I come back, all of you will be alive. He could have done that. But the perpetuation or the advancement of the kingdom of Christ isn't based on my body living forever. It's based on the body as it progresses through the ages with new individual members, the body continuing to follow the will of the head. With all of his power, he could have strengthened them in a way that they never would have been persecuted. He could have put a hedge of protection around them that every time somebody tried to arrest them, every time somebody tried to, to uh, uh, murder them, that they, they could have been invisible. He could have done that. He could have put like this force field so that no sickness would ever get to them and no illness and no problems. But he didn't do that because that's not how you live in the world. Say, well, the apostles, they didn't have to deal with what we deal with. You remember when Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, you should drink a little bit of wine for your often infirmities, for your stomach's sake. Remember that? Why didn't Paul just heal him? But it wasn't in the will of God. And this idea that we should be exempt from the sufferings of humanity isn't, I just need to address that first. That's not why Jesus came. He came to give us eternal life, not a perfect life in this world. So what did He do with all of the power that was given Him? He commissioned the ecclesia. Understand, this is a local body of Christ assembled in person, functioning as a church. He commissions them. This is the first time they've been given a worldwide um, clear mission. This is why you're here. Not to heal yourselves, not to get over any sickness you want to, not to have an easy life, not to be exempt from the local government's uh, taxation, not to, none of that stuff. This is what I am using my unlimited power to do. Go. My brothers and sisters, that is the point. 
all of these messages that the Lord has burdened me to preach about the body of Christ and how she should function with Him as her head, the reason they're necessary is so that we can have a functional body that will be able to go. Not so we can just hang out and feel good and be pain-free. The whole purpose of a body that's healthy and strong and that can move is to be active. And the Lord's burdened me as your very new pastor, <laughs> to, to maybe help build that foundation. We need to have a body that is healthy so that it can work for the Lord. Go. Where should you go? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That, that word is actually should be disciple, and I'll explain it. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So let's look at this first of all. Go and, and King James says teach. It should be baptize, I think. It's the Greek word mathetuo, and it means uh, to be a disciple of someone. So go and, and disciple all nations. What does that mean? In brief, it means preach the gospel of the kingdom. The same gospel that John the Baptist preached, the same gospel that Jesus preached. Repent. <laughs> Repent. This is the only way to come to life in Christ. Repent and be baptized. I've taught on this recently, but I'll just summarize it by saying the reason we're baptized is in obedience to Christ to identify with Him and to be part of the local functioning body so we can do His will. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may notice I don't say Holy Ghost, even though the translation says that, because it's not accurate. That's why. Um, the connotation, I just need to mention this, the connotation of the word ghost, it has like a spooky connotation, it has horror films, it has Halloween connotation. It's, it's not accurate, it's not reverent, it's not respectful to call the Holy Spirit a ghost. Say, well, that's what the Bible says. No, it's what this translation says, which we've pointed out isn't perfect. I like this translation, like I said before, but we need to rightly divide the Word of God. We're taught that. And so you'll hear me. Anytime I read and hear that it says Holy Ghost, I read Holy Spirit because it's more accurate. I'm not trying to cause controversy or upset somebody, but, but the Lord deserves our reverence. And I don't want to call him with a word that brings up connotation of the dark side, the other side, the, the bad things. He, he's not a, a disembodied spirit floating around. He's the living life of God. <laughs> I mean, so the Holy Spirit. Um, so this is what we do. We try to preach the gospel. We try to tell people. We try to warn them uh, to flee from the wrath to come. We try to give them an opportunity to repent and trust the Lord. We, we put that in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because I can't see your soul or your heart. I've been tricked by people before. Have you? If you live long enough, you will be. Somebody will convince you there's something they're not. You know who never gets tricked? God. The Holy Spirit. Jesus. I was in a service recently, a couple weeks ago, Thursday night up at... We have a, a minister's conference. They call it a minister's school, but it's not really a school. It's more like a fellowship. And on Thursday night, there's a service, and they had all the children come up. There were a big, I don't know, 25 kids or 30. And right in front of me, there was 
a little girl who I saw being dealt with by the Holy Spirit. She crumbled. I mean, you, we don't see that a lot because everybody's posturing and acting okay and being religious and being presentable. I saw this little girl, 10 or 11 years old, literally crumble in front of me. The Lord working with her and she fell down in front of my feet. Had nothing to do with me. I just happened to be sitting there. And I saw her crying out to God and praying and sobbing and begging the Lord to save her. And you know what I didn't see? Nobody bugged her. Nobody went down and said, you're okay now, get up. Nobody pulled out the Bible and said, just read these verses, you'll be fine. Because that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what she prayed? And she didn't get satisfied. And I'm still praying for her. Because when she gets to the point that she repents, fully surrenders all of it to the Lord, He'll save her. Until then, it's not my job to make her feel better when she doesn't feel better. So this is the, the foundation of the gospel is to teach people to actually repent. And then to leave it up to God to save them, because this is a supernatural work, and I, I don't have any power in the supernatural realm, except through the Holy Spirit. And then once you allow them to be saved by God, help them understand what the truth is, then help them understand baptism, you baptize them. That's what it means to disciple. Teach them about the things of, of God. Now, after you disciple them, they're saved, discipled, baptized. Then this 20th verse, teaching them to observe all things. This is a different Greek word than the first time it says teach. It's the Greek word didasko. And it's where we get our word didactic. If you've heard didactic reasoning, uh, this, this is teaching. So, first you preach the gospel, people are saved, you disciple them through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of God. And then you also teach them, this is uh, the, the, the traditional idea of teaching. That's what I've been trying to do lately. Hopefully discipling and teaching both. But it's necessary sometimes to teach and I want to say to people who grew up missionary Baptists in this, in this region, a lot of y'all grew up in environments where all they ever do is evangelize and never teach. And that's dangerous. And not just in this denomination, other denominations as well. It's dangerous because you end up with people who've been saved, but never discipled or taught, and they have no idea why they believe what they believe or even sure if they do. So even though I would rather get up here and have a building full of lost people that I can implore to seek the Lord and watch them fall down before Him and be gloriously saved, and I expect that to happen. I do. I'm praying for it. But God is building a foundation here, a body that can actually operate under His leadership. In the meantime. And I'm trying, with the Lord's help, to actually teach. This word, didasco, it, means, it could mean holding discourse with others in order to instruct them. So, um, sitting down in person and having a conversational lesson. We've done some of that since, since I've been here. Sat down with some of you one-on-one -on -one and, and walked through things and why I believe the way that I do. It also could mean to be a teacher, to stand up and actually give a, a lecture sort of thing. Um, to instill doctrine. Uh, and it can also uh, mean expound on a thing. So this is why, um, with the Lord's help, I try to both uh, preach spiritually, passionately, evangelistically, but also to teach. Why? Because we're commissioned to. 
we're, we're taught to. So this is the Great Commission. That, that's what we call it. The reason it's called great is because it's worldwide, it's, it's, it's ever-reaching, as opposed to the, the limited commission that Jesus gave the apostles earlier uh, in his ministry. When he, you remember when he said, go to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, go wherever anybody receives you, preach there. If they don't receive you, move on. This commission, which has been given to the ecclesia, is worldwide. We're supposed to go. So, go into all nations... Baptizing him in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I want to remind us, and this is the heart of my burden today. Um, a lot of us have been conditioned to treat church like it's all about conservation and defense. What do I mean by that? Defense. Um, protect what we have at all costs. Have y'all been to some places where they're actually scared of any outsiders coming in? Because they don't know what to do with them. I went to a, a missionary Baptist church out in the country one time, and I'm a Baptist preacher. And I was there, and they interrogated me, <laughs> make sure why I was there. I told them where I was from, and they said, you sure you're not from that other church with that name? I said, yeah, I know where I go to church. They were afraid of any outsiders coming in. Why? Because they absorbed this idea that they're supposed to be defensive. Did Jesus say, defend yourselves in all nations? Defend yourself against all nations? Build up a barrier against all nations? No, he said, go into all nations. Completely different. So we've absorbed this idea in, our, in, our, in this Bible Belt culture that we need to, to defend ourselves against the corrupting influence of everybody out there. And that's not a biblical idea. We have this idea that we should protect what we have at all costs, even if that means becoming invisible to the world around us and dying off. I've been places where they're, they're like proud of how few people come. And they use that as a litmus test to say we're holding on to the truth because nobody's here. That's how we know we're in the truth because nobody likes it. You can't find me that in the New Testament. So that's not the idea that we're in. Um, because sometimes we get stuck in this, this mindset and we fail to remember how we even got to this position in the first place. We didn't get this blessed state that we're in through our own efforts, but through the precious sacrifice of Jesus and the gift of God. We don't have to worry about protecting what we have because we didn't get it that way. You understand what I'm saying? We got it through the sacrifice of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gave it to us. He's the one who can protect it. And to be clear, the it I'm talking about is, is the power of His presence. Him being among us, us being the people of God. He's the one who gave us that. He can protect us. And by conservation, I said many of us have grown up treating church like it's all about conservation and defense. By conservation, I mean a lot of us... Whether we believe it or not, our actions say we have to conserve our resources. We, we need to conserve our time. We need to conserve our energy. We need to conserve what little bit of money we have because we don't know when it's going to run out. I serve a God who doesn't faint or grow weary. I serve a God who's the king of a thousand hills and has every bit of the world's resources to give us when we need them. 
I serve a Savior who said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. We don't need to to conserve in that sense in the church or in our own lives. I'm not talking about being irresponsible or not being good stewards or being wasteful. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about this idea that we need to like cower and hang on to everything we have because we don't know when we're going to lose it. That's not from the Lord. Many of us are safe for a rainy day Christians rather than give us this daily day, this day our daily bread Christians. You hear me? Which one are you? Are you a save for a rainy day Christian or a give me this day my daily bread Christian? I've been both. And when I'm a save for a rainy day Christian, I'm not very happy. I want to give you an analogy that's painful to me. I think it's true, though. We have become like a malnourished man. I'm talking about the body of Christ. We have become like a malnourished man who actually has enough food on hand to be completely filled. If he would just partake of it. But instead, he's got his food stored away in a dark room just in case he can't get any more. And it's actually taking his energy, but he thinks he's conserving his energy just in case he can't find more food. And he's staying home instead of going because he's afraid he's going to run out. When what he should do is take nourishment from what he has, share with those who need it, go out in the strength of that daily provision and get some more. There's a reason Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. There's a reason the Israelites were instructed to gather only enough manna for their daily needs. There's a reason. Do you remember the manna from heaven that God gave? He told them specifically, don't get any more than you need, except on the day before the Sabbath, because they wouldn't gather on the Sabbath. Every other day, if they got more than they needed, it would breed worms and stink. It would rot. That's not an accident. That is a, 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 a foreshadowing parable It actually happened, but it also would tell people what it will be like if you try to hoard the blessings of God. They're going to corrupt you. His blessings are meant to be active and living and given to us as we have need in the moment. You can't just live on the blessing or the food of yesterday. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Again, The ecclesia, the body of Christ, isn't about conservation and defense. That's not how Jesus established us. He established a new and living and active way, a way beyond the veil. And He expects us to live, listen, like we are actually alive. He expects us to live and to function like a healthy, active body and to go and to take that new and living way to the communities around us and to foreign lands and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why we're here. Now, I've been spending a whole lot of time preaching about the health of this congregation and trying to build you all up with the Lord's help and trying to get us in a place that we're okay and that we can be used by Him. And Why? Because of this. This is why. It's not just so we can get together on Sunday and feel a little better than we did the rest of the week. It's not just so we can feel better so we can go in. It's so we can go. 
We're called and commanded to be a living and active body. And I want you to dwell with me on this. What's the opposite of living? Dead. The opposite of alive is dead. The opposite of living is, is dying. Uh, the opposite of active, what, what would you say is the opposite of active? Passive. Okay. And so the opposite of living actively is having like a sedentary lifestyle. How many congregations, <laughs> we just have a sedentary lifestyle and we just kind of sit there. We kind of hope people will come. No wonder so many of us are so sick. I'm talking about churches, congregations, stagnation. That, that's what I would call it, stagnation. I've been, before I started pastoring here, I preached around a lot of different places. And a lot of the churches I went to were stagnant. When something's stagnant, you can almost smell it. You walk in and smell I mean, you go by a stagnant creek, you can smell it. You walk into a stagnant church, you can almost smell it. Why does this matter? Say, well, I'm just trying to hang on. I'm just trying to go along to get along. I'm just trying to get by. That's a sure path to death. That's why it matters. Stagnation leads to disease and premature death in the human body. The worst thing you can do for your body is to sit around. You know, some of the recent studies say sitting the majority of the day is actually as bad for your body as smoking your whole life. Isn't that something? It's it's dangerous. Uh, A lot of the cultures where they move their whole life, uh, our merits physical therapist told us about this, cultures where they have to squat to to get down and get things or use the bathroom, that sort of thing, they're active up until the day they die. There's none of this um, decomposing in a nursing home for 10 or 15 years. They don't have that because they're active. And the Lord doesn't expect His people, I'm talking about the ecclesia, to just sit around. It's bad for us. Now say, well, you keep preaching, wait on the Lord. Don't do anything until He leaves. Don't just go be busy. Amen. (laughs) So figure out what He wants. (laughs) In your own lives and together. God will guide us. Listen, so many little congregations are stagnant and so stagnant that it's only a matter of time before they die off. This, this mindset has so infected the people of God around here that I've talked to many people who think that we're just supposed to kind of just hang on until we die. That's not what Jesus established. We're supposed to be a force to be reckoned with. We are supposed to be a powerhouse in the world. We're supposed to be, when somebody comes in here, they're changed. And we can be. Activity and movement staves off death, literally, and a properly focused spiritual activity that is inspired by the Holy Spirit leads to spiritual life. Say, wait a minute, preacher, that sounds like a works salvation. No, it doesn't. Here's what I'm telling you. The call to salvation is an active call. It's true that you don't obtain salvation through any of your own efforts. It's true that there are no works of righteousness that you can do. It's true that you can't just make yourself be saved. But when the Lord calls you to salvation, calls you to repentance, and you do nothing, 
you can't be saved. It is an active call. John the Baptist, Jesus, all the apostles, and all the true preachers of righteousness have always preached, repent, which is active. So I want to read that sentence again. uh, Properly focused spiritual activity that is inspired by the Holy Spirit leads to spiritual life. That's what we're trying to do here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and all whom the Lord our God will call. That's Acts 2, 38 39. Beautiful promise from the Lord. That's why we're here. That's why the body uh, needs to be built up and in a a way that we can function and and do the job that we have because we're commissioned to go. That's really simple. Yeah, aren't you glad? It's not complicated. I'm the, I'm the one who complicates things in my It's simple. I'm supposed to go outside of my own comfort zone, outside of my own flesh, out, and just go out there and see who needs me. It's not that hard. So I'm going to conclude the message. That's what's on my heart for today. And, and in the same posture of continuing to try to teach, I'm going to give us a summary of the the last six messages. The body of Christ and how she should function with Jesus as her head. The first time we talked about that, we gave an overview of the seven main influences that influence a congregation. I'll go over those in a moment. We talked about the historical uh, significance of the word ecclesia and why I don't just say church, 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 because it's deeper than that, that ecclesia, who remembers what the word means? Called out. Called out. Amen. We are the called out. And that's special. Called out. We're not supposed to just blend in with the world. We talked about uh, the history of the translation and how uh, the Lord, I mean, they weren't speaking English in the first century. It didn't exist. Jesus uh, preached in Aramaic or Greek most of the time. He spoke Hebrew probably to some of his followers. And the New Testament was written in the, the language of the people primarily, which is Koine Greek. We talked about all of that. We talked about how God used um, people throughout history to advance his word and how one man in particular, William Tyndale, gave his life to make sure we have a, an accurate translation, and how the state religion murdered him. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about how, in order for us to understand any of these influences on the ecclesia, we need to understand who Jesus is. And we spent one message trying to discuss who he is. Not just the Son of God, but the actual embodiment of everything that God is the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so let's remember these points because as we continue to grow as a congregation, as we continue to try to figure out why we're here on Rockland Road in Hendersonville, why are we even here? Well, just because we've always been here. No, you you haven't always been here. (laughs) Why are you here now? I want us to be thinking about that and praying about it. What does God want us to do? And as we do that over the coming weeks and months and prayerfully years as a body, we're going to have these influences that try to make us do things a certain way. 
these six categories of influence and the seventh one, which hopefully will drop the seventh one. So let me just run through these again. The first influence that should influence a true congregation of Jesus is Jesus himself. The life and teachings of Jesus Christ, everything he explicitly commanded, everything he implicitly taught, everything he modeled in his own life and actions, this is the one we must focus on, brothers and sisters. Say, well, you keep talking about that. Yes, I want you to get it. When I say what's the first and most important influence, I want you to be able to say it without thinking about it. I want it to be there. Because if we can get this, we'll be able to be used by God. If we don't get this, we'll just be floating around religious group not doing anything. We have to be influenced by Jesus. If you're wondering how you should treat somebody, see how Jesus treated people in similar situations. If you wonder how you should live in the world, see how He lived in the world. If you wonder how you should handle a conflict or a dispute or, or a question about any relationship, see what He did in similar relationships. And if you don't find the answer there, the second place is what is explicitly taught in Scripture. This, is the, this should be the second influence on the Lord's congregation. The doctrines of the ecclesia. All the things that are taught in Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, and specifically in the epistles. The letters of the pastors to the churches that existed at that time. The third point that we talked about is everything implicitly taught in Scripture. And these are the things that it doesn't come right out and spell out, but you see the way that they handled things. I'm talking about the people of God, and it gives you wisdom for how to handle things now. We uh, discussed before how item number two and three, or influence number two and three, the whole purpose of, of what is explicitly and implicitly taught in Scripture is so that we will understand how to observe the first thing, or to, to model our lives after the life and teachings of Jesus. And then the fourth point is what God has written in our hearts. I talked about this, how uh, this was a promise, a covenant that the Lord made with the house of Israel. And he talked about in Jeremiah that he said, I will write my law in their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is a promise that was fulfilled in, in the first century New Testament times to the people of God. And again, I'm thankful that even though we're focusing on learning, we're focusing on some teaching, primarily what matters is God writes His truth inside of you, if you know Him. That's beautiful. That's why you can come across people who know a lot of religious stuff in their mind and don't get it. That's why you can be religious but lost. That's why you can quote the Bible left and right. You remember Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus. Or Scripture, he quoted to Jesus. It didn't mean he knew God. I mean, we're taught that in Scripture. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the devils believe in fear and trembling. It doesn't make them saved. So, God has to write His Word, His law in your heart. And the fifth point, the fifth influence on the Lord's ecclesia should be everything revealed by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and prompted by the Holy Spirit. This, this is the one that maybe is most immediately helpful to us. When we come together as the body of Christ and try to do what God would be pleased with, we need to be sensitive to that still, small voice of God. Listen. Well, how are you listening? Are you listening with your ear? It's deeper than that. You're listening with your spirit. 
And when God prompts you to do something or nudges you to do something in the assembly, do it. And if He's not prompting you to do something, don't do it. There's too much noise in too many churches. But I don't, with all this preaching I've been doing lately, I want to emphasize this. Brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord, He can lead you with His Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to act. And like Brother Bob said last week, you don't have to be a church member to follow the Lord or to participate in the service or to be led by Him. Just make sure the Lord's in it, the Spirit is in it. And the sixth point is everything that complements or conforms to or promotes the first five points. These are the beneficial traditions, customs, habits. These are the things that we do, that we're used to, the way we do things. They could be done a little bit differently, and maybe they will be. But it it helps us facilitate assembling together. There's nothing wrong with this category. We just need to recognize that this category isn't what justifies us in the sight of God. And the main thing is the first five, not our habits, traditions, and customs. And then the seventh category, this is the one I said prayerfully, by God's help, I hope we just get rid of this one. Everything else. All the religious stuff. All the noise from our culture. All the things we've absorbed from our religious backgrounds. All the things we've been taught that aren't actually Jesus' teachings. There's a lot of corruption in religion. There's a lot of noise. I hope we just let go of all of that. And instead listen and follow the Lord. That's the point uh, of these messages, of trying to understand what is the ecclesia of Jesus, how should we function, what should we do. We need to follow Him, we need to be active, we need to figure out how He wants us to go into the world. And I'll conclude by saying this, I, I believe we're here for a reason. I don't know exactly what that reason is, I mean I could tell you generally we, we need to reach the people around us, we need to give them, get the gospel to them, uh, that's true. But I'm not sure if that means at some point we need to have a food pantry. I'm not sure if that means at some point we need to have like a backpack drive for the local children who can't afford school supplies. I'm not sure if that means we need to have meals and invite our neighbors. I don't know how it will unfold. But what I'm telling you is I want us to be prayerful because we've been given a great gift that we take for granted. I mean, we actually have eternal life. We actually have what the whole world is looking for. And I don't want us like that that analogy I gave you. I don't want us to be like the starving man who has enough food to be filled, but it's all tucked away in a dark room with no windows. That's what most church buildings are. We're not supposed to just come in here and hide. We're supposed to come in here and worship the Lord and get strength to figure out how He wants us to go. Some of you who've been in this a long time, you're older, you, maybe you have a few years of life left, or a few days, we don't know. You may say, well, I can't do anything anymore. Oh, yes, you can. You can pray. You can love. You can intercede for the people who are still out moving. Oh, you can do more than maybe you did as a young person. To the young people, let me tell you, don't waste your lives. Don't spend it on a frivolous stuff that doesn't matter. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It will be worth it. I haven't served the Lord perfectly, but I've tried to serve Him. And I don't regret it. I don't, I don't wish I had a wild youth. I don't, 
I don't wish I sowed my wild oats. I don't wish that I had been able to party before the Lord called me to preach. I'm thankful that I've been trying to serve Him because He has blessed me. And we shouldn't be ashamed to say that. But if some of you did have a wild youth, a wild childhood, wild 20s or whatever, and God saved you and He's using you, God bless you. It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters whose you are and where you're going. I I heard somebody say, I'm not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I was. I heard it put a different way recently that was even better. I'm not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I will be. It's all going to be worth it. We're not yet what we will be. Take heart in that, brothers and sisters, as we try to discern the Lord's will for this congregation. God bless you. Yeah.